Please turn your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians in the second chapter. This morning, I want to look at verses 11 to 22. As we're turning there, the Apostle has been looking at length at the way that the Christ has been pleased to bless us and himself, repeating the gospel promises to us over and over again. And we see then his collective remarks and sort of a summary of that here in verses 11 to 22 of chapter 2. I'd like to read that together now. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus far for the reading of God's word, please join me as we ask our Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we would pray that you would bless your word unto us once more that you would meet with us, for we know this morning that we have our various callings that we've come from to this place. We pray, Lord, that you would meet with us individually and corporately and grant that we might have ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you have for us in your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, in looking at Ephesians 2 and thinking about what I wanted to preach and coming to, to be with you all this morning, but I wanted to preach on this particular passage. If you've ever know, heard of Guy Fawkes Day, a movie about 20 years ago, you know, V for Vendetta, speaking of that, there's this call to remember, remember the 5th of November, uh, the day that the Catholics tried to blow up the king in England, and they have a special day to, to celebrate it. And they are still celebrating it to this day, uh, hundreds of years later, that it galvanizes an entire nation, and even the, uh, the rest of the Commonwealth, since we fought a war that we don't care what the king has to say, we don't celebrate it here, but there's a way in which it galvanizes the people to remember a common event in their past with a call to action in the future. And in that, this collective memory continues to ground that community, and we know something of that ourselves. If I was to say, you know, where were you when we uh, sheltered in place uh, to flatten the curve for two weeks, uh, you could probably tell me. 
or you perhaps have blocked it out, but we would know have some sense of where we were. Or if I was to ask you, where were you when the towers fell? You would probably know. And I've heard, you know, having it been before my time, you could do the same with the wall or where, when it fell or where were you when they, there was victory in Europe or whatever day it might be that we know what a collective memory can serve to galvanize a people for future outcome. And it has a very powerful effect where when I say, you know, where were you when the towers fell? I'm not just asking you a point in time, but it brings with it all the memories and the emotions and the things that came afterwards that have an effect on the future that is still used today, that it can bring that to memory. And the reason I remind us of these things is that Paul is doing something similar. If you look in verse 11, he repeats remember twice. Verse 11, remember, and verse 12, remember, that he's calling us or bringing something to mind for us that is common to all who are in Christ. And he's saying, remember. But why would we remember? We'll see that in a little while, but it's a similar call to action of sort of common core memory that we all have if we're in Christ. It's remember. It's not something new. It's something shared. And we see that laid out for us. If you looked in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul has concluded that all things are subject to Christ. It says, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, in Ephesians 2, he's transitioning to considering closely our life in Christ. And in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, he described our new life in Christ. I think Paul, in coming to this, is really dealing with what we might think of as the Zacchaeus effect where we hear that Christ is coming by and we think that we're going to climb up into a tree and look by and we think that's for somebody else. That we haven't partaken of that or don't understand where I'm coming from or what I've done or what I haven't done. And it's not for me. But Paul's coming and saying, if you're in Christ, remember. And he's done it for you. And we see that in 11 and 22. And so this morning we'll see Paul detailing our union with Christ to the end of Gentiles being included in the redemptive history that the Lord has been working, that we might remember to seek no other mediator save Jesus Christ the righteous. And we'll look at that in two points. Apart from Christ in verses 11 to 12, and secondly, in Christ, verses 13 to 22. Let's look first apart from Christ in verses 11 and 12. We see that we are not by birth close to the promise. In verse 11, notice what it says. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul's writing to the Ephesians. It's in modern day Turkey, more or less. Uh, They're very far from Jerusalem if you look on the map. They're not part of the promise by birth. They're Kind of like us, you know, being in Milwaukee or the Midwest, we're a long ways from Jerusalem. We're apart from the promise by the flesh. Uh, there weren't, you know, uh, folks coming over here. The, the ten lost tribes aren't here in Wisconsin. Uh, we're not having that sort of outcome that it's d- unique or distinct. We are the uncircumcision according to the flesh. In other words, we have no hope apart from Christ. That, that's who we were. We're being called to remember who we were who we are by birth, 
that we have no right to come near by birth. We have no right to expect the Messiah to come and to take an interest in you or I this morning because of who we are by birth. And we see that we are reminded of that constantly by those who are their circumcision made by hands. They're reminding us, you people don't have any right to come near. We do. That's our birthright. We're the ones to whom the promises were made. We are the ones to whom the prophets were made, were sent. Not to you all. And yet we see that ultimately they've misunderstood the gospel. When it says here in verse 11, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. They've misunderstood what the whole point of circumcision was. They think it's just something that you do with the external senses. Something that is made in the flesh. For the Lord told them in Deuteronomy 10.16, this, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. The point of the sign in the flesh was what? That they would circumcise their hearts. That they would come near to the Lord. It's this picture of what we would think of as regeneration. Of one being made new under Christ. Of having their heart that fleshly matter removed that they might respond to the gospel. And so Paul's saying, remember that you, we, are the uncircumcision by the flesh. But he continues on. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's reminding us again that not only do we come from the wrong parents, our lineage is all wrong if we want to be near to the promise, but we're outside the commonwealth of Israel. That we're not even near. You know, Zacchaeus at least could climb a tree and see Jesus. We're so far removed, there's no way we're even getting close to a tree to be able to see him. That we're far removed from that commonwealth. We're not part of that people at all. Notice in verse 12, it said we were alienated from it. We're actually enemies. It's not that we're neutral. We're enemies. We're at war with the Lord. That's who we are from birth. We come out from the womb, as it were, with a a raised fist against God, and we just improve upon it throughout our life. And we see in verse 12 what he says concerning that. He has two negatives concerning our position. We want to wrap up our life apart from Christ. According to Paul here in verse 12, it is what? Having no hope. That there's no hope for being outside of Christ is what he's telling us. And he wants us to remember that. Why are we without hope? Because we're not near the covenants of promise. Because we're not near to the household of God. And that's who we are by birth. Each and every single one of us. And so the call then to remember that is that we would recall that we like to tell ourselves all sorts of stories that we have hope. We support this cause or that cause. I've done this or that. We make and manufacture a source of hope for ourselves. This isn't a sort of uh, reminder of saying, you know, people who are apart from Christ can't be happy. They certainly can be. We can see that all around us. It's saying objectively, without hope, that there's no hope for them. And he goes on to tell us why we have no hope. And the second negative, without God in the world. It's the same sort of word that we use for like atheism. 
the same sort of word that it's without hope. It's without God. To be without God is to be without hope. To be with, apart from Him is to have no life in ourselves. And so here we see that Paul is reminding us that if we are apart from Christ, or when we were apart from Christ, we had no hope. We didn't have a God. We didn't have hope in this world. Now, as an aside, this isn't saying that you know I haven't uh, you know I've decided to follow Jesus and now we all of a sudden have a have a God like we might sing with the song and it becomes something about us. Uh, it's saying that we don't have a Lord who is for us, who stands for us, who we can call upon in the day of trouble. It's not saying that God isn't the God of those who haven't been called. He certainly is. But that we don't have one who's for us. What does God tell to Abraham? I will be your God and you shall be my people. That it's a God who is for us is what's being spoken of here in a positive way. And so, in short then, Paul is saying in these first two verses of our section to remember that apart from Christ, we have no hope and we have no Lord or no God. And so, to kind of summarize that, then we have to recall these things like we might do with certain political events that come alongside in our lifetime. You know, if we had to think about, you know, where were you where the towers fell? I'm guessing if you're of a certain age, you'll, you'll recall, and you'll have the emotive power of that. And you'll have all sorts of things like, we need to do this, this, and this. But more importantly today, is do we remember who we are apart from Christ? That's far more important. That's far eternal worth. In the, the grand scheme of things, it won't matter where we were on certain days. But where were we? Do we remember we are apart from Christ. Because Paul's about to transition to considering who we are in Christ. And that's what matters. That's what counts. But first we must remember who we are apart from Christ. That we might look to Him and Him alone. So we've seen who we are apart from Christ. And I want to move on now to considering who we are in Christ in verses 13 to 22. We see in the Lord's activity in verse 13, that he has done something to change the status quo, to change the equation and to make a change that is a different state for the believer. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what's changed. We've remembered who we were. But now. But now. We are found in Christ. There's a new position that we find ourselves in today. If you're in Christ this morning, you're in a new position. That's not anymore where you are without God and without hope in the world. But now, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's incredible of this new position. That it's not that we now are far off, we're apart from the promise We have no life in the commonwealth of Israel. We have no hope and no God in this world. But now in Christ, He is gone to those who are far off, like you and I, and has brought us to Himself, brought near, brought near to Him, that now all these things have been reversed. And how did He do that? By His blood. That this was not accomplished with some small effort on His part. But in the fullness of time, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And He has redeemed us from all unrighteousness and clothed us with His, bringing us near to the household of God. That we are now here. 
And that's, in summary, where every Christian is if we are united to Christ this morning, which is for all of us. And that's incredible that if you and I struggle with the, what I would like to think of as the Zacchaeus effect, we're like, well, that's nice, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things with all Christians, I'm, I'm not a super great Christian and I'm kind of on the fringe. And I just kind of look in and I get to see the afterglow effect. That's not what the passage is saying. For everyone who's in Christ, we've been brought near. He hasn't brought us near as the help where we're just here to sort of help serve the tables or we're just here to be semi-close. What has he told us that we are already? Look over in chapter 1 with me in verse 5 and see how near we've been brought. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. We're sons. Now, that's not some sort of... uh, patriarchal after effect being in the text, it's in that day, people who can inherit, who can inherit along with Christ, that we have a legal right to receive all that Christ has received as it says elsewhere. So we've been brought so close that we have an interest in that inheritance which Christ has purchased. We've been brought near as sons. Can't be brought any closer into the family. Uh, You can't be brought in any closer. And that's what Christ has done in bringing us near. So if you're in Christ today and you're discouraged, look at what Christ has done. He's brought you near. He's brought you near as a son. You who were far off. What more can we have cause for to rejoice but that we are there, that there's no second-class citizens in heaven. We're not sort of at the end of the line where if you've ever been and someone's reading a will and you've been told you have an interest and you get kind of to the end and they're like in, into... Uh, you know, to Michael, I leave a dollar. Uh, that there's a sort of you have an interest, but it's not like you know your cousin Bobby who who received uh, everything else. Um, that it's not like we're receiving, but a small cap, a point. But we're receiving the same along with Christ. That's what we're receiving. That's our inheritance, and that's what Paul is saying in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near as sons. And that's where we are this morning. So let us remember who we were and who we are now and let us take comfort of what Christ has done for us as we've been brought near. But he goes on, for Christ has done even more than this for us in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We see that Christ then not only has brought us near, But he has established peace for us. He's established peace for us. This is far greater than what we might pray for in praying for, for instance, you know, peace in the Middle East. Uh, We're thinking of a small times, not saying we shouldn't. Don't hear me wrong. The saying that that's going to continue until Christ returns. But what is it that Christ is saying? He's established peace for his people. That's enduring. It's not going to be breached by some sort of conflict between here and the end of this present age. But that he's brought us into this state of peace by what he's accomplished. Notice what it says in verse 14. Has made us both one. Who has he made one? Those who are the circumcision by hands and those who are the uncircumcision. Jews and Gentiles. Two people that are so different according to the birth because of our position of the promises that he's brought us near as one. 
And now we're one body in Christ. And, and the sort of picture here, you can imagine of how strange it would be if I was to come up to you and, and to tell you that your uh, hand is not really part of your body. It's separate. And, you know, it's no big deal. We're just going to chop it off. And it's not part of your body. Hopefully, most of you would say, you're not removing my hand. It's, it's part of me. That's what he's saying. Of, we've been made into one body in verse 14. Made us both one. And he goes on in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That we've been so joined together that you can't separate us anymore. There's not a, a sort of mixture that's occurred where here's the uh, Gentile part of the body and here's the Jewish part of the body. No! We're one person in Christ. That's the amount of level of peace that we have. That even if you wanted to, you can't separate us out because we're one in Christ. That's what he's saying. We've been brought so near and so close and have such a peace that we who are according to the flesh at war are together in an indistinguishable sort of way. And so this union has been accomplished by Christ and will not be undone. So again, I think he's emphasizing in verse 14 that heaven doesn't have a sort of hierarchy where you're not going to have the folks who were in the Old Testament saints and they're closer to the throne and we you know, are, are, are so semi-close and closer than those who will come later. Uh, but that it's the same. We're one in Christ. And we've been brought near by His blood. And now we are one body in the same Lord. And he goes on to describe again more about the enmity which has been removed. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We see that what has been accomplished then is not only a sort of positional unity, where, you know, perhaps it's just autobiographical, where it might be, you know, my sin might say, well, you know, that's just positionally, uh, that's not sort of how it works out in the day-to-day sort of reality. But Paul's saying that's not the case. It's not just a change that has occurred on paper. It's a change which has occurred in reality, in space and time, now. For what does he say? Verse 15. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. If you have read recently you know, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and you've uh, stayed awake for the duration of it, you'll see there are all these purity regulations that are being brought to pass. It matters what you wear, what you eat, uh, what you drink, uh, where you sleep. You know, if you have a fly that gets in the pot, you have to cr- crush it and clean the whole place. Uh, that There's all these regulations, and what is it doing? But creating a separation, a physical separation, between Israel and everyone else. And what Paul is saying is that those ordinances which had their place have been abolished because Christ has fulfilled them and has sanctified his people for himself. And so now, in the church, we no longer have those things. We're not separated out by those regulations. Or to put it more simply, there's not just a distinction that is made on paper of us being one. But that's our lived experience too. Jew and Gentile together in the church, one new person in Christ Jesus. And thus we no longer have hostility with one another. Or the sort of sense of you're unclean because of some sort of positional uncleanliness. And he's made these things to be of no further effect. If 
you'd like to look over at the book of Hebrews with me, in chapter 8, we see the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in verse 7 something concerning this. So I think Paul is looking towards that in this passage in Ephesians or teaching the same sort of concept that it has been fulfilled. And so in Christ we have that fulfillment or the natural end for which those things were were created to accomplish. Notice in verse 7 of Hebrews 8, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we see really three things from this series of verses I wanted to quote and want to explain why I'm quoting them for our passage. First, what Christ has done with the old covenant is he's made it obsolete. He's made it obsolete, just like the automobile made the horse and buggy obsolete. You don't need it anymore. It'd be strange. We have cars now. They're much better. Why would we go back? Even more so, Christ has made the old covenant obsolete. It's done. It had its day. It was fine. It was good, but it's done. Secondly, it was engineered to pass away. It had engineered failure. We know that now, you know, every year. The new phone comes out and the old one doesn't work so well because it has engineered obsolescence. It's supposed to come to an end. That's the old covenant. It wasn't intended to go on in perpetuity. It had a point in time where it was to be done. When Christ came, engineered to pass away, engineered obsolescence. And so the conclusion, the third item, there are those who desire to cling to the old covenant for as long as possible and they're looking for the time when the types and shadows came with power. But they have nothing to cling to anymore because Christ is here. And so Paul then, wrapping this in with our passage, is saying he's eliminated that hostility. He's done that away with to his end in time. And he's brought it to its natural conclusion in the new covenant. And so Christ has abolished that. And he's made it binding then upon all people to be brought into this one single covenant. Turning back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, in saying these things in terms of causing us to be reconciled to the Lord, is bringing to mind that now we are one in every way. He's eliminating any sort of question or any sort of of concern that we might have or might be raised at the unity that we now have in Christ. Of how close have we been brought? We've been brought near by His blood. He's 
caused us to be one person in Christ. And he's eliminated that hostility because we are at peace with one another. And he's highlighting these items to cause us to understand that truly it is done. And he continues on in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That Christ in coming and making this unity between Jew and Greek has come and preached the gospel to each. Notice he came and preached peace. That's to those who are far off and to those who are near. Now, again, as an aside, certainly Christ went to Israel first. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born of the seed of David. He came and he proclaimed the gospel to them first in a unique way. No one's disagreeing with that. But what it's saying is he came and he preached that message to them. And he's come and he's preached the same message to us by his apostles and his word. So there's no distinction. Certainly the Jews had sort of pride of place or they had the, the great blessing of first hearing the gospel and of receiving the Messiah. But that doesn't make a distinction in Christ. It's just saying the Lord was pleased to bless them in that way, in fulfillment of the promises of the Old Covenant. And so Paul, in highlighting this, is again saying that even though he came and preached to us, the Gentiles, you know, at a later date, we are still one and the same. We've received the same gospel. We've received the same proclamation of peace. And so we, all of us this morning, are those who live in the last days. Where now there's no longer distinction between Jew and Greek. No longer does it matter where we are. No longer are we going back to Jerusalem to sacrifice. doesn't matter the bloodline of our parents. It doesn't matter of who we are by birth. What matters is that Christ has gathered us together, made us one in Him, and done that by His blood, and has secured for us that peace which will never end, and that He has accomplished for those who are one with Him. And He has done that. And so this morning, let us live that way, believe that, as those who live in these latter days. And He continues on in verse 18, saying more of these things. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. We have the same access through the Spirit. What an incredible blessing of what the Lord has done for us. He's broken down all the hostility. He's given us peace. He's given us access to the Father by the same Spirit. He's just going through line after line after line of what either we, when... Uh, the accuser of the brethren is accusing us and telling us that, you know, these aren't true for people like you or like me. Uh, it's true for the really good people. And we're certainly not that, the accuser might say. Uh, that we're not saying that. It's going through and saying, no, this is true for every Christian that we are found in Christ. And likewise, that we then have that same access in one spirit to the Father because we are one. That's the level to which we have unity now. We're not looking forward to heaven when we will have unity. Certainly, we will have a better uh, experience of that unity because we won't be sinners anymore. We'll be doing things which bring division. But rather, we're saying that now we have that unity already and that we have that in the Spirit. And so in summary then, in verses 14 through 18, 
All people have redemption in Christ alone. So let us remember that. It is in Him alone we have peace with God and communion with Him. There's no other way to have those things with Christ. There's no other way to have access to the Father. And that's true both for Gentile and for Jews. Because we are now one in Christ. Let us recall those things that we might look to no one else. And we see that he continues on in verses 19 to 22 to describe how we are now part of the household of Christ. Notice in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We've been brought near. Kind of returning to that idea I brought up earlier about how close have we been brought into his household. Now, household, we might again say, uh, that includes a lot of folks in that time, but what it's saying is we've been brought near as family members, as heirs. We're in his household. We're part of his family. And that this way we're now no longer strangers and aliens. So when we come to the Lord and we cry out by faith, we pray what in the Lord's Prayer? What do we call the Lord? Our Father. Why do we do that? We've been brought near in Christ. That's who we are now. Heirs, children, with a right to access, with a Father who longs to hear our prayers, who cares for us, who knows our struggles, and He has brought us near through the blood of His Son. So no longer are we strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So each and every saint, each and every Christian has been brought near and has the same access and the same rights and the same benefits, regardless of whatever way we might distinguish according to the flesh. And how we, will we then make a distinction where Christ has not? We cannot. To do so is to build up the wall of division again. And that is not the way that we learn Christ. And we see that being laid out here in verse 19, that we are saints and members of the household of God. But that's true for each and every one who is found in the Son. Thus, in Romans 8, verse 17, it says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. That's the incredible thing that Christ has done. He's made us heirs. We who were apart from Christ and enemies by birth. We who were without hope and without God in the world have been now been brought near into the very household of God where He cares for us and provides for us time after time after time. Thus, Paul will, in the verses which are ahead, highlight in uh, chapters 5 and 6 what we, some have called the household codes. We're not going to get into that today because of time. It's not our, our purpose. But I think he's really preparing that then to describe with how can we do these things which by the flesh are very difficult. Because we're living as those who are heirs in Christ as part of the household of God. And so he will bring that to pass as a sort of natural outcome of that as we recall who we are in Christ, that we long to do those things because we are part of that household. But we are heirs first. And he's reminding us of that time after time that we are heirs one and another, along with our Lord and Savior. Because we see then that not only are we now saints, but verse 20, 
We are all built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We're being built up into this dwelling place for the Lord, along with all those who have come before. Christ is the cornerstone, and each successive generation have been found in Christ, have been built up in Christ, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We see then that all of us are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what's being accomplished here in the church, that we have that great blessing now of seeing that come to pass and of being part of that, that we are so close that that has been accomplished for you and I. And so in summary, in Christ we have been brought into his household. And in short then, the reminder to recall in verses 12 and 13 is to recall that we are now in Christ empowers us to respond out of gratitude to all that the Lord has done for us. For he saved us unto newness of life. Look over at chapter 2 with me, if you'd like, or just listen. In verse 10, as a plan for... Pardon me, that's chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. The call to to recall and to remember is grounding us in this response of gratitude for what the Lord has done. There's law in terms of the the third use of the law of conforming ourselves to Christ, but it's the gospel, what Christ has done for us, which makes that possible. That our response to doing those good works which God prepared before and for us to walk in is because of what Christ has done. And so Paul, in wrapping this all up then, is saying we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for them. We're saved for them. In other words, that they've been set aside beforehand that we would walk in them. You can imagine how uh, foolish it would be to say that uh, we don't want to do those things even though God has laid them out for us to do. We're just going to sort of leave them undone. They've been prepared beforehand for you and I, custom fit for each of us to do according to God's grace. So Paul, in wrapping this all together, speaking of the growth which comes from the Lord and of that response has detailed all these things under the sort of call to remember that we would then not see these as a burden, not see them as drudgery, but rather as the great blessing and privilege of the Christian to walk in those good works which the Lord prepared for beforehand, that we would walk in them. In this way, Paul has grounded us in these things that we might look unto Christ. Because ultimately then, in terms of the entire passage, What has he been saying? But that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've had all these blessings showered upon us, built up into Christ. And that now, as we are one, that we get to live unto God, not out of fear that we would ever come near, but rather that we are those who have been already told, you're a son, you're an heir, you're one with Christ, you're one with the saints. We're not working anymore out of a fear of hoping we do enough to get into glory, to be received, but rather because Christ has saved us and brought us near by his blood and granted to us good works that we might walk in them and that we might respond accordingly. Then we see that what Paul will do eventually in chapter 4 is tell us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But this morning... 
we see that we have been found near in Christ. And so, look unto Him. Don't look to anyone else. There's no one else who can bring you near. People try all sorts of things to be brought near to God. They have other mediators who will stand between you know, Christ and them and sort of work things out. They'll have things where they think, if I do enough, Jesus will accept me. Or whatever it might be, I'm sure you've heard them yourself or have been tempted to do them yourself. But what Christ is saying, that's only through Him. And He's done it for those who will look to Him by faith. And so let us do that, that we will look unto Him and to no one else. Because what is He saying? That He has brought us near and He's done all these things that we would cry out to Him and ask that He would help us if we are in Christ today to believe these things all the more. That they're true not just for other people, but that they're true for you and for me if we are in Christ today. That we might look unto Him and remember that He has died for us. That we might remember that we who are far off are now near. That we might remember that we are now part of the household of God. That we might remember that He has gone to prepare a place for us. He would not have told us if it were not so. So let us look unto Him. So in conclusion... This morning, remember. But first, in order to remember, we must know the gospel. We must know that, not just in terms of knowledge and assent, but we must know it experientially. That's true, not just for others, but for you and for me. So let's do that this morning. And look unto the Lord. And thus live with the great freedom of being part of the household of God, heirs with Christ if He has granted to us a Son to secure that birthright for us, He will not hold back anything else from us that He has promised to do in His Word. So let's go forward with boldness as the Lord has told us to do. As He tells us elsewhere, if we lack wisdom, let us ask of Him and He will give to us freely and without reproach. So let us do that and go to Him who has such care and concern and kindness for all of His children without partiality. Let us remember these things and look unto Christ. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you have granted salvation such as this, not just to those who are by birth heirs of the promise, but that you have been pleased to bring people such as ourselves near and into your very household because of what Jesus has done for us. We would pray, Lord, that you would cause us all the more to believe that these things are true not just for others, but for ourselves. We would pray, Lord, that you would cause uh, all of us to know that hope which comes from you alone and to know the blessing of what it is for you to be our God and for us to be your people. We pray, Lord, that you would add these things unto us by the power of your Holy Spirit and for the sake of your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.